Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here, gathered with brothers and sisters in Christ, and praising our God and remembering our Lord and Savior this morning. And uh, here in just a few minutes, we'll have the opportunity to gather around this table and to fulfill the command and the example that Christ left for us to remember and to proclaim His death until He comes again. And I know that's the purpose of our gathering here this morning. And I appreciate the songs that have been selected and the focus and the intent to keep our minds focused upon why we're truly here, and that's to remember what Jesus did for us. I'd encourage you this morning to get a Bible, and if you would, turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And this morning we're going to discuss and study from the Scriptures and uh, talk about the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the fact that if it were not for the resurrection of Christ, everything that we were doing for God and all the things that we seem to do in service to Him and His church would be null and void and they'd be empty and meaningless. But some 2,000 years ago, people went to the tomb where Jesus had been buried, where they had saw His body placed, they had seen the stone rolled in front of that door, and they had seen it sealed with the Roman seal. And when they went that morning as it dawned toward the first day of the week, they saw something that startled them. That stone rolled away and, and Jesus was not there. I often think about those women that went to the tomb. They went prepared to see the body of Jesus, didn't they? They went there to finish the preparation that they were going to do to the body and so that it would be preserved as long as they possibly could at that time. And what they saw was an empty grave. What strikes me about that is Jesus had not kept it a mystery to them of what would happen to Him. He had told them plainly. And here in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 31, He talks to His disciples and tells them very plainly and clearly what was going to happen to Him. He says, Then He took unto Him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitted upon. And they shall scourge him, and put him to death, and the third day he shall rise again. And they understood none of those things. And this was hid from them, neither knew they the things which were spoken. You see, we're blessed to be able to look back on this event and say, we know exactly what Jesus was talking about. How could they not have known? And I think if that was us at the time and Jesus had said, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be murdered, I'm going to be buried in a tomb, but three days later I'm going to rise again, where would we go? I would hope we would just sit there at that tomb and say, yeah, you killed him, he's coming back. And we would wait for that third day to come to watch and to see Jesus rise from the dead. But where were the disciples? They were scattered, weren't they? Yes, it was prophesied that they would scatter. But they were scattered because their Messiah, their Savior, had been murdered and the one that they had placed their trust in was gone and they didn't know where to turn. And I want to tell you, our life today without the resurrection, resurrected Christ is the same way. We scatter and we don't know what to do. There's a lot of skeptics that discuss the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we live in a time where all these ideas float around and they gain momentum and there's conspiracy theories and there's the idea that it was just a spiritual resurrection and His body really didn't come out of the grave and they stole the body. and he, All these ideas. 
And because we can communicate so easily, people jump and they hear that and they say, well, that, that got some validity to it. But this morning, if you don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, you don't believe in the resurrection that the Bible speaks of. And this morning, we're going to study the evidence to prove without a doubt that the body of Jesus that went into the tomb came out. And then we're going to talk about the consequences of that resurrection. We're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to identify and answer a very simple question. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? The word gospel literally translated means the good news. What is the good news of Jesus Christ? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first four verses, he declares that unto those that would hear. And Paul writes, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. There's three elements to the gospel of Christ. It's the death, it's the burial, and it's the resurrection. And we would ask ourselves, which one of these facts of history would be the most heavily scrutinized? Is it the fact that Jesus died on the cross outside the city of Jerusalem? No. Even secular scholars admit that. Is there any dispute that He was placed in entombed inside the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea? There's no dispute over that. The one that would fall under scrutiny would be the resurrection. Because the resurrection is something that's totally against nature and it's something that God did to establish the authority of Jesus Christ. And if we deny the resurrection, we deny what? We deny His authority. Because the only way Jesus can truly be the Son of God... And the Lord of lords and the King of kings is that He was raised that third day never to die again. And you say, well, other people had been brought back from the dead. Jesus Himself had brought them back. And that's true, but guess what? They died again. Jesus' resurrection was different. So this morning, we want to establish and look at some facts concerning this resurrection, not only so that we can teach and, and show others with this material and the opportunity we have to study with them, but that we would be reassured in our minds that we know who it is that we're serving because if we do we have a promise of the same resurrection that Jesus was the first fruits of continue on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Paul says and if Christ be not risen then is our preaching vain and your faith is vain also Yea, and we are all found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up. If so be that the dead rise not, for if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you are yet in sins. That's why the resurrection is so important. It's because without the resurrection, we have no hope and we're still in our sins. And our preaching is vain and our message is vain and we have nothing to offer to this world. But if He was raised, we have hope. And we have the promises of God. Consider those consequences that He talked about. He says preaching is worthless. 
How many sermons have you heard in your life? And could you imagine that all just being worthless and a waste of time? Your faith is worthless. The fact that you have faith that God created, the fact that you have faith in who Jesus was and what He taught and the miracles that He performed would be worthless without what? Without the resurrection of His body. Not only that, you are considered a false witness because we do testify of those things of God. We're in our sins and everything Christ taught was a lie. If Jesus' body was in that tomb on that third day at all, Jesus was a liar. Blasphemous words. Christianity is a fraud and collapses without the resurrection of Christ. What was it that changed the lives of those apostles from the time that Jesus was murdered on the cross and the time that they began to preach the gospel just about 50 days later. The only thing that was different was they saw the resurrected Christ. And the point this morning is that when you meet the resurrected Savior, you're different. You're not scared. You're bold. You're not doubtful. You trust. You're not discouraged because you have a promise. And all of those promises are made and fulfilled because Jesus was raised from the dead. You see, if Jesus was raised, there is a God. If Jesus was raised, His Son is Jesus Christ. If Jesus was raised, then God made us and created us and God loves us and Jesus is able to save us from our sins and this life is not all there is. And we have a future And death and suffering have to be viewed totally differently because of the resurrection of Christ. It's the pivotal moment of our faith that Jesus came out of the tomb. And I know we remember His death. And and here's the point too, is that the resurrection means nothing without His death. (laughs) And His death is where the offering was made. But the power of eternal life was exemplified to you and I by God raising Jesus up from the dead. All of these are consequences if Jesus was resurrected. And I want to give you a reminder. Hebrews 11 and verse 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What we have to do is study the Word of God, look at the facts that we can establish, and say, what does the evidence truly say? You know, some people won't believe no matter how much evidence you put in front of them. They've got their own ideas and what they think, and you can put together an airtight case about anything, and they still won't believe. You know, there were people in the day of Christ that knew Jesus' teachings, saw Him walking and performing miracles, saw Him murdered on the cross, saw Him placed in the tomb, saw Him in the resurrected state that denied it. So no matter how much evidence you may establish, some people will choose not to believe. But what about you? You see, it takes more faith to not believe in the resurrection than it does to believe in it. Because the evidence clearly leans to one side. What are some of the challenges to the resurrection of Christ? Number one, there are the naturalists. 
that say it's just impossible because we live in a physical, natural world and anything outside of the bounds of nature cannot happen. Therefore, the dead do not rise and we don't see that. Jesus couldn't have been risen from the dead. They dismiss or they seriously question the resurrection. They accept, some people accept, but they only accept because you can only just have faith in it. We can't really know for sure, but I'll put my trust in God and say He did, and that's what I'll believe. Some accept and stand behind some scriptural text while they'll deny the accounts of others. And then there's a fifth category that accept the text of the New Testament, they accept the empty tomb and the literal raising of the body of Jesus Christ. Which category do you fall in this morning? I want to tell you there's only one that pleases God. And it's that fifth category. That you believe the words of the New Testament established. You believe that the tomb was empty. And you believe in the literal raising of the body of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because in that belief and in that faith and the establishment of the facts that the Scriptures bring to us is the only way that we can have hope of the same kind of life and resurrection. There's a few different ways you can go about to prove the resurrection. Number one is to establish the authenticity of the biblical record. You can try to prove that and study the documents and the manuscript evidence and the literary evidence and all those things and establish plainly that the New Testament is true and when people read it, they'll accept it. Acts 1 and verse 3, the Bible says, To whom also He showed Himself alive after His passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. There was no doubt to them who Jesus was. Why? Because He proved it to them over and over and over again. How many times did it take for Jesus to appear to them before they really believed? It was really just once, wasn't it? He appeared to the disciples the first time. Thomas wasn't with them. And they tried to tell Thomas about it. And what did Thomas say? Except I see it with my own eyes, and except I feel it with my own hands, I won't believe. You see, Thomas was blessed to have that opportunity about eight days later, wasn't he? Jesus reappears and Thomas is with them. And what does Jesus say? Put your finger in my hand in the nail prints. Put your hand in my side and be not faithless but believing. You see, they had the opportunity to see with their eyes Jesus that had come forth from the grave. You and I have to believe why? Based upon their eyewitness accounts. But I want to tell you, the proof is infallible. There is no doubt that the body of Christ came out of that grave. And if you have any doubt in your mind, you're doubting the power of God. And when we doubt the power of God, our faith is weakened. And our trust is brought into question. F.F. Bruce speaks of the New Testament documents and says if the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity and their accuracy would generally be regarded as beyond all doubt. But because they speak of things that pertain to life, And the authority of God in man's life, man does everything that he can to reject the authority of the Scriptures. But there's ways to study that and to talk to people about that that will clearly establish the authority and the accuracy of the New Testament. You see, here's the proposition that we bring forth concerning the resurrection of Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, a Jewish prophet, 
who claimed to be the Christ taught in the Jewish scriptures, was arrested, judged to be a political criminal, and was executed by means of crucifixion. Three days after his death and burial, some women who went to his tomb found the body gone. In the following days and weeks, his disciples testified that God had raised him from the dead and that they had seen him various times prior to his ascension in a cloud. That's the proposition of the facts concerning the resurrection of Christ, and it can be proven in many different ways. Number two, you can examine the well-known facts that are established concerning the resurrection. Number one, the empty tomb. And here's how you can do that. Number one, where did the disciples go preach first? They come to that tomb. It's empty. The women go tell the disciples. They rush. It's empty. And then we see that they meet Jesus various times. And then he gives them the commission to go and do what? To preach the gospel. Now, he had told them to stay and wait in Jerusalem because that's where it needed to start. But if this wasn't true and Jesus really wasn't raised from the dead, where would the disciples have gone to preach this message of the resurrection of their Savior? As far away from Jerusalem as possible. Because everybody in Jerusalem would have known it was a hoax or that it didn't happen. But they could have gone off to some other corner of the world and began to perpetuate this false doctrine, couldn't they? They didn't do that. They stayed in the very city where Jesus had walked, where Jesus had taught, where Jesus had been murdered, where Jesus had been placed in the tomb, and where Jesus was raised from the dead. They weren't hiding anything, were they? And because they preached in that same place, they were able to establish the facts historically that this happened. They didn't run off to some other corner of the world and try to build up a false doctrine. So they had no fear. Number two, why didn't Jewish and Roman authorities just produce the body? To me, this is the key. They did everything they could to guard that tomb, didn't they? They placed a seal over it. They put guards in front of it. And then all of a sudden you get people teaching that Jesus isn't in there and He's been raised. And if you're the Jewish and Roman authorities, you can solve that problem real quick, can't you? We'll go get His body and we'll show it to you. And what you're teaching will be found out to be a fraud and you'll collapse. Why didn't they do it? Why didn't they find the body? Because it wasn't there. You see, that kind of evidence points to the idea that Jewish and Roman sources admit the empty tomb. Secular historical writers from the day and from the time account that Jesus wasn't there in that tomb. Now our faith lies in the Word of God because we believe in what it teaches, but you've got a generation of people who won't accept what the Bible says. And we have to use every tool at our disposal to try to teach them and to lead them into a relationship with God that they can trust His Word and become devoted followers of Christ and have, be able to partake in that resurrection with Him. Dr. Paul Mayer calls this positive evidence from a hostile source which is the strongest kind of historical evidence. In essence, this means that if a source admits a fact decidedly not in its favor, then the fact can be considered genuine. 
Was it in the favor of Jewish and Roman authorities to admit that the tomb was empty? No. Why do you think when Peter preached the gospel in Acts chapter 2, you had thousands of people baptized? Because they realized what they had done and that was all established. Why? Because Peter said that same Jesus whom you have crucified, God has raised up and made Him Lord and Christ. And they were pricked in their hearts. By those 3,000 Jews converting at one time, it identifies that and they were all in Jerusalem. That confirms to us that there was no doubt in that day that that tomb was empty. But here we are 2,000 years later and we like to speculate about what we think and what we know. Let the history stand on its own and prove the facts. And may we base our faith upon the evidence that's all around us. The second point when considering the well-known facts is the movement of the stone. What was the first thing noticed as everyone went to that tomb? The stone had been rolled away. You know, every gospel account identifies and talks about the stone being moved. Matthew chapter 27 verse 66 tells us that so they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Nobody was getting in that tomb and nobody was getting out as far as the Roman and the Jewish authorities were concerned. But every account of the Gospels establishes that the first thing that they noticed as they came to that tomb that Sunday morning was that the stone had been rolled away from the door. And you say, why is that significant? Why is that important? Look at the passage. These four passages. Matthew 28 and 2. It says, Behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. Mark 16 and 4, And when they looked, they saw the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. Luke 24 and 2, And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. John 20 and verse 1 says, The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. You know, not all Gospels record every fact the same way. But when it comes to the resurrection of Christ, all four of them establish what? The stone was rolled away from the door. Who did that? Did the Roman guards do it? (laughs) They'd have been murdered. Did the disciples somehow sneak in past the Roman guards and roll a 2,000 pound door, stone away from a door without anybody knowing? No. See, what they saw was the results of the work and the power of God. And every one of the Gospels establishes that fact. We also can establish that the, broken, the Roman seal had been broken. Jesus was executed as a criminal of Rome. And His tomb was sealed. The Scriptures speak to that. The breaking of the Roman seal was punishable by death. And trust me, Rome had no problem putting people to death for any cause that they thought and deemed appropriate. 
And if you went and you broke the seal that had been placed on a tomb, Rome and Roman law commanded that you be executed. Then we can look at the Roman guard's response. You see, these men were highly trained in what it was that they had to do. And when they set a watch, it wasn't just one or two that was there. They had somewhere between 15 and 24, depending on the accounts and the historical records and accuracy that we have in those things. Standing a watch at this tomb. And what happened when they saw that Jesus' body wasn't there? They feared punishment. They feared for their life. Dr. George uh, Curie is a student of Roman military history. He wrote that the fear of punishment produced flawless attention to duty, especially in their night watches. You didn't fall asleep when you were on guard. Why? Because you were severely punished. These men were highly trained. They weren't just a ragtag bunch of people. They said, hey, watch this tomb for us. Make sure he doesn't get out. The Jews and the Romans understood that if Jesus somehow came out of that tomb, they were done for. And they couldn't stop this movement because if it was true, they were fighting against who? They were fighting against God. Isn't that what Gamaliel had told Paul when he was Saul of Tarsus? And all this uproar was taking place and the preaching of the gospel was happening and the church was beginning And Gamaliel said, let's just see what happens. Because if it's true, we're fighting against God. And if Jesus' body came out of that tomb, they would have been fighting against God. They had everything invested in guarding that tomb. But they couldn't stop it. And then we look at more evidence of hostile witnesses. And I asked this question, did Jesus only appear to his disciples? You know, if he only appeared to those 12 that were closest to him and then they began to teach this, a lot of people would say, well, you know, y'all have reason to teach this because that's who you were with. But we have so many appearances of Jesus to other people. And the fact that he appeared to Saul of Tarsus, someone who persecuted and hated the people of God, the Christians at that time, And we see the change in him. He was the most hostile witness there could have been. And yet when Jesus appeared to him in his resurrected state, what happened? He changed. Because he admitted the tomb was empty. Acts chapter 9 verses 1 and 2, we see that account of Saul of Tarsus. It says, And Saul yet breathing out threatenings, and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And verses 4 and 5 says, And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. In the span of three verses, we have a man ready to go and kill Christians to bring being brought under the power and the hand of God. 
And then all of a sudden, what does he do after he's converted? He's preaching the message of the gospel. That's reliable evidence from a hostile source. And I ask you, what kind of change has the resurrection of Christ made in your life? A lot of us and a lot of you may have been raised, we, we use that term, raised in the church. <laughs> and you may have been raised in the church. But at some point, the resurrection of Christ has to change your life. And you have to understand that, yes, I've been blessed to be able to be raised in this environment and taught these things from my youth up. But at some point, that faith can't be your parents. It has to be your own. I'll tell you, that's one of the things that scares me about having my boys. See, I wasn't raised in the church. And when somebody came and taught me these things at first, I said, ah, I don't want nothing to do with that. But the more I studied and the more people studied with me, I had no defense. And I said, man, that's what I need. That power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that I need in my life. But I'm scared my boys might take it for granted. Because we're teaching them that from their youth up. But I want to tell you, the power of the resurrection is the same for those that have never been in the church that are converted and those that are raised from their birth up in the kingdom of God. The powers in the resurrection. And when you meet the resurrected Christ, something in you has to change. Maybe you don't change watch how you worship because you've worshipped the right way your whole life, but something inwardly has to change. That's what happened to Saul of Tarsus. He thought he was serving God, doing all the right things and checking these things off of this list of his own righteousness and how he had obeyed God and he was zealous toward those things. But then he met Christ, the resurrected Christ. And he changed almost overnight. Then we could look at the evidence of the many, many appearances of Jesus. This is a basic fact. The more witnesses equals the greater reliability. If you have one eyewitness to a crime, it's almost a he said, she said situation, isn't it? But all of a sudden, when you get two or more eyewitnesses to a crime... That prosecutor's ready to go to trial. Why? The more witnesses equals the greater reliability. How many witnesses were there to the resurrection of Christ? Well, Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians 15. He says in that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. The apostle Paul didn't say, hey, I saw the resurrected Christ, take my word for it. He said what? If you don't believe me, go find one of these other 500 witnesses that he revealed himself to at one time, because a lot of them are still alive today. You can go and confirm what it is that I'm teaching to you, if you have any doubts. Dr. Edwin Yamachi, Associate Professor of History at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, says what gives a special authority to the list of witnesses as historical evidence is the reference to most of the 500 brethren still being alive. Such a statement in 
an admittedly genuine letter written within 30 years of the event is almost as strong as evidence as one could hope for something that happened nearly 2,000 years ago. Why we can believe in the resurrection is because Paul wrote these letters within 30 years of the resurrection, distributed them, and said there's still 500 people alive that saw the very same thing. Go and confirm it. The greater amount of witnesses equals the greater reliability of the story. 500 people testifying of these events for six minutes would equal 50 hours of first-hand testimony. Who would argue with that? And then my next question is, of those 500 people, how many of them would only talk about it for six minutes? <laughs> so you just imagine the volume and volume of material of these people that saw the resurrected Christ, and we're telling everybody about it. There was no denying it. It wasn't done in a corner. It wasn't hidden. It was done right out in the open. Purposely. Because God didn't want there to be any doubt in who His Son was. What does the evidence say? Now, here's some basic arguments that people may throw at you when you discuss the resurrection of Christ. Number one, the women went to the wrong tomb. I've heard that one. If that's true, then every disciple went to the wrong tomb. And if that's true, then the Jewish and Roman authorities didn't know where the tomb was. How foolish is that to believe? But some people put their faith in the idea that the women went to the wrong tomb. Number two, the witnesses had hallucinations. My question to that is over 500 people in one region had the same hallucination at the same time. Now I've talked about some of the work that I do at the mental hospital and here's where it comes into helping me in church work. Hallucinations are specific to the individual. I've yet to have two patients come to me with the exact same hallucination. But some people say, well, all 500 of those people had the same hallucination at the same time. Do you believe that? If you do, I ask, where's your faith? This is just a statement people have. It's not based upon any kind of science. They just, well, they just hallucinated Jesus. And this may sound foolish to you, but I want to tell you, movements like that and movements saying that, well, his body wasn't raised, it was just his spirit, I want to tell you, are gaining ground. Because people want some other way to explain what they can't explain. Because they don't want to accept the Word of God. Production of the body would have solved this. If it was just a hallucination, all they had to do was say, here's the body of your Jesus. And we wouldn't be here today to remember His death. Number three, Jesus swooned. Let's examine the swoon theory for just a moment. This contradicts all medical science on the matter. Jesus would have had to have survived crucifixion after being beaten, survived two more days in the tomb without food, without water, with a limited supply of air. He would have had to have removed the stone himself in his state, 
He would have had to have overpowered the Roman guards and he would have had to have convinced his followers that he had defeated death. You see, the swoon theory says that Jesus never really died. He just passed out. And then he was able to do all those things in that beaten state and then came forth from the grave never really having died and convinced his people to go teach that he had died and been resurrected. What's it take more faith to believe? But people believe this. You know why they believe it? Because they don't want to submit to the authority of God. Why do you think our nation is taking God out of everything? We, we act like that's a, a new problem. It's been happening for a long time, brethren. What we have to make sure is that we don't take God out of His church and out of His kingdom. And that we submit to His authority on matters such as this and the resurrection of Christ. Some said, and even in His day, said the, the disciples stole the body. Well, where were the disciples after the crucifixion? They scattered. They were scared. And we're to believe that these men that were scared to death because Jesus had been put to death had gotten together and devised a plan that they would go and they would overtake the Roman guards and they would go in and steal the body of Jesus and hide it somewhere. But they had nothing to gain by stealing the body. If they had stolen the body, they would have been perpetuating a lie. And how long would that have lasted? You see, at some point, self-preservation kicks in, doesn't it? One of those eleven, and then once Matthias has chosen those twelve, and the other hundreds of disciples that began to go and to preach about the resurrection of Christ, somebody would have broke. Somebody being interrogated by the Roman authorities would have said, okay, stop. I'll take you to where we put the body. None of them did. Men don't die for a lie. Men die because they know what the truth is. There was no doubt in their mind that Jesus died and came forth from that grave victorious over death. And they said from that day, we're willing to die for Him. You see, I use the example of Watergate. <laughs> How quickly did the inner circles of the cabinet begin turning on each other? You're talking about within hours. They're confronted about these tapes and this lie, and all of a sudden, everybody's against everybody trying to preserve themselves. But the apostles didn't do that. Every one of them had the same story. And every one of them died for it. Would you die to prove and to teach the resurrection of Jesus Christ? They did. We've got brethren in foreign countries that risk their life to preach the gospel. And I hope and pray that we're that bold and that we're that strong, that we would be willing to face death and to not turn our backs on our Lord because we know the truth. Romans themselves did not believe that His disciples stole the body. And you say, how in the world do you know that? If they did, they would have killed them right then. If they had evidence that His disciples had stolen the body, all 12 of them, or 11 of them at that time, would have been on a cross and destroyed the same way. But they didn't do that. Why? Because they knew he, they didn't steal the body.
Now I want to cover with you real quick the timeline of Paul's writings. And here's why. You talk to people about the authenticity of the New Testament. They'll bring into question the authenticity of the Gospels and trying to get those back as the dating of those writings and to establish their credibility. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, Galatians, and Philemon are accepted by critics of the Bible as authentically and dated to the time of the Apostle Paul. Therefore, speaking to their accuracy. So without the Gospels, we can prove the resurrection of Christ to those critics. And how do we do that? We start in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8. We've read these verses this morning, and here's the point. That Jesus appeared to not just a few people. He appeared to all those witnesses. And Paul says they're still alive and they're credible today. Go talk to them if you doubt me. And here's the timeline of his writings. About 30 A.D., Jesus is crucified. 31 A.D., we see the early doctrine is beginning to be spread almost immediately after the resurrection of Christ. From 31 to 34, somewhere in there, we see Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9 within three years of the event. Galatians 1, 11 and 12 says, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after me, man, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, Paul wasn't converted by one of the other apostles, was he? None of them came and sat with him and convinced him of who Jesus was. Jesus himself convinced him by appearing to him in his resurrected state. That's Paul's conversion, and the timeline of that's between 31 and 34. Then in Galatians 1 17 and 19, under that, it says, Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. But other of the apostles saw I none save James the Lord's brother. So he says, I was converted. I began to preach. He didn't go to Jerusalem right then. He went where? To Damascus. And what did he do? He preached. And then three years later he goes to Jerusalem. And what's he find out? I'm preaching the same message they're preaching as he meets Peter. You see, Jesus revealed it to him, but then he went and was able to do what? Find confirmation. Then Paul goes to Jerusalem. He meets Peter and James, 37 A.D. By 51 A.D., Paul returns to Jerusalem again some 14 years later and has those things confirmed to him one more time. Galatians 2 verses 1 and 2 says, Then fourteen years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also, and I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. I picture Peter and James being there in Jerusalem and they can see afar off and they see Paul coming again. He's coming again. (laughs) And they tell him, that he, he rehearses as this is what I'm preaching to people. And what do they say? Same thing we're preaching here. Keep doing it. Paul wanted to be reassured. He wanted that confirmation that he was preaching the same message. And they were consistent in what they were going out in the world and telling people. And then he'd do that and he'd go back out and preach again. Galatians 2 and verse 6. 
says, but of these who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me, God accepteth no man's person. For they who seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. They didn't add anything to what he was going out and preaching to people in the world, did they? They said, you got it. Go preach. And Paul went and preached. Now, Paul returns again, and in 55 AD, about that time, Paul writes 1 Corinthians. Why is that significant? Because that statement of those 500 witnesses still being alive falls within the time frame of about 25 years. It can't be a myth, can it? can't be a legend, can it? They wouldn't perpetuate a lie and give their lives for a lie. So without the gospel accounts, within seven years of the resurrection of Christ, Paul had received and preached the gospel. Then within 21 years, had that gospel confirmed to him. And within 25 years, had written 1 Corinthians and said, there's still almost 500 people alive. If you don't believe me right now, go talk to them. What more reliability do we need? But at some level, it takes faith. And a lot of people today will say, except I put my finger in his hand and my hand in his side, I won't believe. And the bottom line is they don't want Jesus to be an authority in their life. And by God raising Jesus from the dead, He set Him into His place of authority. You know why we worship the way we worship today? Because Jesus was resurrected. You know why we go and preach the gospel to people today? Because Jesus came out of that tomb. You know why we live to the best of our ability a life with God? Because Jesus is alive today. And I ask you the question, is He alive in your life? He's sitting on His throne in heaven, but if you're not glorifying Him in your life, you're the one that's hurting yourself. And because that tomb was empty and we're about to partake of His body and His blood that represents to us His death and His suffering... I'll tell you, there's also a great proclamation of His life within that memorial. And if you've not submitted yourself to the resurrected Christ, and you're not living for Him, you'll die separated from Him. And if you need to be baptized into the blood that was shed at Calvary, so that one day you can have the same kind of resurrection, so we're buried with Him in baptism just like He died that we might have hope of the same resurrection that He had. That one day our bodies, if we die on this earth, will come forth from the grave victorious over death. And it'll be a great and glorious day for the child of God. But if you don't have that hope, Christ is offering it to you this morning. You can be baptized, have your sins washed away, and have the hope of a resurrection awaiting you. Won't you do that this morning? If you're here and you're a brother or sister in Christ and you've done those things, but let's be honest, maybe Jesus isn't really living in your heart. 
Maybe you're denying Him in the way that you live and the way that you speak to your fellow man. Let Christ arise in your heart again this morning and let Him live with you. That's what He desires. He can make every change that you need Him to make. But you've got to come to Him. Please come while we stand and sing.